John Flavel, a meditation on Romans 7.21, I find in a law, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. This chapter is a very anatomy of a Christian's heart, and gives an account of the most secret frames and inward workings of it, both as to graces and corruptions. In this verse is a compendium above, where the words are a mournful complaint uttered with the deep sense of an inward pressure, by reason of sin, wherein we are to consider three things. Number one, the person complaining. Number two, the manner of complaint. Number three, the discovery of that manner. First, the person complaining. I find, I, Paul, though I come not behind the chiefest of the apostles, though I have been wrapped into the third heaven and heard things unutterable, Yet I, for all that, find in me a law. Never was any mere man more deeply sanctified. Never any lived at a higher rate of communion with God. Never any did Christ more service in this world. And yet he found a law sin in himself. Secondly, the manner of the complaint, which consists in a double evil he groaned under, namely first, the presence of sin at all times. And secondly, the operation of sin, especially at some times. First, the presence of sin at all times. Evil, he says, is present with me. It follows me as my shadow does. But evil, we must understand. No other evil but sin. The evil of evils, which in respect to power and efficacy, he also calls a law. Because as laws, by reason of their annexed rewards and punishments, have a mighty power and efficacy upon the minds of men, so sin, indwelling sin, that root of all our trouble and sorrow, has a mighty efficacy upon us. And this is a mournful manner of its complaint. It is not for outward afflictions, though he had many, nor for what he suffered from the hands of men, though he suffered many grievous things. But it is sin dwelling and working in him that swallows up all other troubles as rivers are lost in the sea. This evil was always with him. The constant residence of sin was in the heart and nature. Secondly, and what further adds to his burden, as it dwelt in him at all times, so it exerted its efficacy, more especially at some times, in those special times and principal seasons in his whole life, when I would do good, he says, any spiritual good, and among the rest, when I address myself to any spiritual duty or heavenly employment, when I design to draw near to God and promise myself comfort and redress and communion with him, then is evil present. Oh, if I were but rid of it in those hours, what a mercy should I esteem it, though I were troubled with it at other times. Could I but enjoy my freedom from it in the seasons of spiritual duty, in times of communion with God, what a comfort would that be? But then is a special season of its operation. Never is sin more active and busy than at such a time. And this, oh, this is my misery and my burden. Thirdly, the next thing to be heeded here is the discovery of this evil to him, over which he so mourns and laments. I find in a law, he says, I find it, i.e. by inward sense, feeling, and sad experience, 
He knew that there was such a thing as original sin in the nature of man, when he was an unregenerate Pharisee, but though he had then the notion of it, he had not the sense and feeling of it he as now had. He now feels what before he traditionally understood and talked of. I find a law. What? Or how others find? I know not. Some may boast of their gifts, and some may talk more than becomes them of their graces. They may find excellencies in themselves, and admire themselves too much for them. But for my present part, I find a law, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. I am sure I find a bad heart in the best season, a proud, dead, wandering, hard heart. I find it woefully out of order. God knows, and this is my misery. Hence note, Trin, that the best Christians sensibly feel and sadly bewail the workings of their corruptions, and that in the very seasons and opportunities of their communion with God. Bring your thoughts, reader, close to this point. And sadly ponder the three things in it. First, in what special acts Christians use to feel the working of their corruption in the season of their communion. Secondly, why is it that corruption stirs and troubles them more at such a time than at others? Thirdly, upon what account is this so great a burden to every gracious heart? First, it's the first of these, namely, the special actings of corruption and the seasons of communion. Dear such, is have a natural aptitude and design to destroy all communion between God and the soul. Galatians 5.17, the flesh lusts against the spirit. It is contrary to the spirit, and by reason of that contrariety, a poor Christian cannot do the things that he would. How many times have some Christians lamented this upon their knees, with bleeding hearts and weeping eyes? Lord, I came here to enjoy you. I hope for some light strength and refreshment in this duty. Promise myself a good hour. My heart began to warm and melt in duty. I was near to the expectation and desire of my soul, but the unbelief, headness, and vanity of my heart has separated between me and my God and withheld good things from me. Three things are requisite to communion with God in duties. First, that our thoughts are composed. Secondly, activity of faith. Thirdly, excitations of affections. And all these are sensibly obstructed by innate corruption. For by indwelling sin, the order of the soul is disturbed by sending forth multitudes of vain and impertinent thoughts to infest and distract the soul and its approaches to God. The sense of the Zebo gave occasion to that prayer. In Psalm 86, verse 11, Unite my heart to fear your name. Much have we to do with our own hearts upon its account every day. Abundance of rules are given to cure this evil, but the corruption of the heart makes them all necessary. Secondly, the activity of faith is clogged by natural unbelief. Oh, what difficulties has every work of faith carried through? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Mark 9.24, it cramps the hand of faith in every part of its work. The soul sensibly feels itself bound and fettered by its own unbelief, so that it cannot assent with that fullness, clearness, and determinateness that it would. It cannot apply with that strength, 
certainty and comfort it desires. And thus, are the wings of faith pinioned, that when we would soar aloft in the highest acts of sweet communion with God, we can but flutter upon the earth, and make some weak essays and offers heavenward, which oftentimes are frustrated and put by, through the unbelief did us in us. Thirdly, the excitation of the affections is rendered difficult, a reason of that natural deadness and hardness that is in the heart. Alas, it is naturally in heart of stone, and as it is to dissolve or melt the rocks into a sweet syrup, is a heart into spiritual and heavenly affections towards God. There's scarce anything in the world the Christians more passionately bewail and are more sensibly afflicted forth in the deadness and hardness of their own hearts. Nothing is found sufficient sometimes to affect and raise them, and yet, if they be not excited out of their torpor and stupidity, they cannot have communion with God in duties. And if we inquire into the reasons why poor Christians find themselves more infested by natural corruptions in the seasons of duty than at other times, the reasons are obvious to him that considers that duty irritates it, Satan excites it, and God permits it to be so. First, corruption is irritated by duty. It is provoked by that which bridles and purges it. Nothing is found more destructive to sin than communion with God is, and therefore nothing makes a fiercer opposition to all fellowship and communion between the soul and his God than sin does. Its waters swell in rage when they are obstructed by a dam, so do our corruptions when obstructed and checked by duty. Sin would fain make men leave praying and prayer, fain make men leave sinning. Secondly, as duty irritates it, so Satan excites it, especially in such seasons. When Joshua the high priest stood before the Lord, Satan was seen standing at his right hand to resist him, Zechariah 3, 1. How hard is it for a Christian then to be dexterous, apt, and ready for spiritual work, while Satan stands at his right hand, the working hand, to make resistance? The devil is aware that one hour of close, spiritual, and hearty converse with God in prayer is able to pull down what he has been contriving and building for many a year. Now this envious spirit, having an easy access to the fancy, that busy and unruly power of the soul, will not be wanting to create such figments and notions in it. It's like a rapid stream, shall carry away the soul and all of it thought from God and duty. And what to do of most Christians to prevent the sallies and excursions of their hearts from God at such times? Number three, if Satan exercises it, or a wise and holy God for good ends to his people permits it to be so, the thorn in the flesh keeps them humble. These lamented distractions and corruptions and their duties destroy their dependence on them and glorying in them. For if we are so prone to pride and confidence in our duties, amid such sensible workings and minglings of corruptions with them, what would we be if they were more pure and excellent? These things also make the saints weary of this world, and to groan within themselves after the more perfect state in which God shall be enjoyed, and seen in more perfection and satisfaction.
But this, in the meantime, cannot but be a very grievous affliction and pressure to the gracious soul, to be thus clogged and infested by its own corruptions in the very season of its communion with God. For, by this the soul is rendered very unsuitable to that holy presence that approaches Habakkuk one thirteen dower of pure eyes and of a whole evil, and cannot look on iniquity. Must a great and blessed God wait upon a poor worm till it be at leisure to attend him? Must he be forsaken by every trifle that comes in the way of its fancy? Oh, how provoking and evil is this! Surely God hears not vanity, neither will the Almighty regard it. Job 35.13 This unsuitableness of our spirits to the Lord cannot do less than cover our faces with shame, as Ezra did. In chapter 9.6 Oh my God, I am ashamed and even blushed to look up to you. Secondly, by this, those benefits and comforts are intercepted which are better than life. There's a sensible presence of God. There are manifestations of pardon, peace, and love. There are reviving influence and fresh anointings of the Spirit. There are a thousand mercies of this kind that in their season are communicated to men in the way of duty. And it would not grieve a man to the very heart and soul to be defeated of those inestimable treasures by the breaking forth of the unbelieved pride or vanity of his own heart when such mercies are almost in his hand. Your iniquity, saith the prophet, have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. O cruel covering, O dismal cloud, that hides the face of God from his people, that they cannot behold it. Wherefore am I come from Jeshur, saith Absalom, I may not see the king's face. What am I doing here on my knees, says a Christian, if I may not see God? Duties are nothing to me without God. The world and all of its comforts are dry and tasteless things to me without God. His manifested favor and sealed love are the very life of my life. And from this, the corruption of my own heart has cut me off. Thirdly, by the things of beauty and excellency of duties are defaced. Do these dead flies spoil the excellent ointment? For wherever in consists the beauty and true excellency of duties, but in that spirituality and heavenly temper of soul with which they are performed, this makes them suitable to their object. John 4.24 Take away spirituality from duties, and then you may number them among your sins and the manners of your shame and sorrow. Take away the heart from duty, and what remains but a dead carcass without life or beauty. Fourthly, by these things gracious souls are greatly puzzled and perplexed about their state and condition. This is a fountain of their fears and doubtings. Oh, when a man feels such deadness in his heart towards God, such stiffness in his will to the will of God, such a listless, careless temper to all that is spiritual. How, he thinks, can this consist with a renewed state and temper? Sure, no Christian is troubled with such a heart as mine is, especially when it shall be found in its ordinary course, so free, 
nimble, and indefatigable in its pursuits and entertainment of things sensual and earthly. There it is. It's a chariot of Aminadab, but here, like Pharaoh's chariots, there it as much needs a curb as it does a spur here. Lord, says a poor soul, I know not what to do. If I do look into my heart, I cannot be sincere. And if I do, I can have no comfort. This is a sad perplexity indeed. Lastly, by the things the Spirit of God is grieved. And that which grieves him cannot be a grief and burden to us. His motions are quenched by these corruptions. His sanctifying designs as much as lies in us obstructed by them. Surely then there is cause enough why a Christian should follow every thought with a deep sigh and every stirring of unbelief with a sad tear. The usefulness of this point is great and exceedingly seasonable when we are to draw near to God and address ourselves to spiritual duties. It may be to great purpose be improved this way. For one, of information. Number two, direction. And number three, of consolation. We may greatly improve it for our information in the following particulars. Hence, we may take our measures of the wonderful and astonishing grace and condescension of God to his people, who notwithstanding all that evil which is at present with them and the good they do, will not reject their persons or duties for all that. How does free grace make its own way through swarms of vanity? How does it break through all the deadness and fidelity and hardness of our hearts to do us good? Though evil is present with us, our gracious God will not be absent from us notwithstanding that. How greatly was a spouse amazed at the unexpected condescension and grace of Christ in this manner. Song of Solomon 2.8 It is the voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, skipping over the hills. It is the voice of my beloved. That abrupt broken expression shows a perfect surprise. She saw mounds of guilt and unworthiness between Christ and her soul. And yet, behold, he comes skipping over all those mountains and hills. Oh, free grace, rich and admirable grace, which with so many notwithstandings and nevertheless will save and comfort a poor and unworthy soul. Number two, how little reason have any of us to be proud of our best performances. There is not a just man upon earth that does good and sins not, saith Solomon, Ecclesiastes 7.20. If there be something supernaturally good in our duties, yet there is abundance of natural evil co-mixed with that good. Ill evil is wholly ours, the good, holy God's. We have no reason then to glory in our best performances. It has been a question with some whether some short transient act of a regenerate soul may not be free from sin. But it was never questioned whether any continual act, much less a course of actions, could be without sin. Evil will be present with us in all we do. It will be with us in our closets, present even in the awful presence of the Holy God in the most high and solemn duties of religion, in the most pure and spiritual actions that pass from us. Cease, then, is from dependence, so from pride and conceitedness in all you do, while our natures are sanctified but in part, and our principles mixed 
Our duties and performances can never be pure. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. John 14.4 How are we obliged, all of us, to bless God for Jesus a mediator? To make us and our sinful duties acceptable to God? Sad were a case if this high priest did not bear the iniquity of her holy things as it is. Exodus 28. 38. It is his oblation and intercession that obtains and continues our pardon for our prayer sins, our hearing sins, our sacrament sins. These alone would eternally damn us if we had no other. Did not free grace make us accepted in the Beloved? Ephesians 1 6. When evil is present with us, then is Christ, our advocate, present with the Father for us. And thence it is that we are not destroyed upon our knees, and that the jealousy of God breaks not forth as fire to devour us in our very duties. If evil be present with us, yea, inherent in us, in our best duties, what need had Christians in to watch against the external occasions of sin and to keep a close guard upon their senses, especially when they have to do with God? There is danger enough from within. You need not open another door from without. This natural corruption is too active in itself. If there be no irritation by any external occasion, how much more when the eye and ear open and unguarded and occasions are offered it from without. Watching is half the work of a Christian while he is praying. Ephesians 6.18 The Arabian proverb is as instructive as it is mystical. Shut the windows, that the house may be light. Number 5. If evil be present when we would do good, if it infest us in our best duties, then certainly there is no rest to be expected for any of God's people in this world. Where shall we go to be free from sin? If anywhere, let us go to our closets, to our knees, to the ordinances of God. Yea, but even there, evil is and will be present with us. If we cannot be free from evil there, it is vain to expect it elsewhere in this world. Only in heaven, believers rest from sin. When once they are absent from the body and present with the Lord, sin shall no more be present with them, which should make all that hate sin long for heaven, and be willing to be dissolved and be with Christ. Direction number two. Let all that experimentally see and feel what the apostle here mourns over, carefully attend such directions as may prevent the spoiling of their duties by the working of their corruptions in them. Though no rules are found sufficient to prevent wholly the influence of our corruptions upon duties, yet on it is a special mercy, if it may in any measure be prevented or restrained. In order whereunto I shall hand briefly these following rules which the experience of many Christians has recommended is exceedingly useful in this case. 1. Be more diligent in preparation for your duties if you would meet with less interruption in your duties. The very light of nature teaches solemn preparation to all important and weighty business. And is there more solemn and concerning business in all the world 
in that which you transact with God in your spiritual duties. Angels approach not this God with whom you have to do, without profound respects to his immense greatness and awful holiness. Isaiah 6.3 When you stretch forth your hands, it is required that you first prepare your hearts. Job 11.13 and 14 Rule number 2 Realize the presence of God in all your duties. Die your hearts all that you are able by that consideration. Oh, thank. What a piercing holy eye beholds your heart and tries your reins. Would you not be really ashamed if your thoughts were but vocal to men and the workings and wanderings of your heart visible to those that join with you in the same duty? Oh, if the presence of God were more realized, certainly your hearts would be better secured against the incursions of your corruptions. Rule number three, labor for a deeper measure and degree of sanctification. Many of the rules are but spiritual anodynes to give present ease, but this is a way to a real cure. Thousand things may be found helpful to put by a vain thought for the present but then it returns again, and it may be with more strength. This is a proper method to dry the spring when others are but attempts to divert the stream. If habits of grace were more deeply eradicated, the grace would be more easy to us and flow more freely from us. Lastly, consider what an aggravation it is to your evil to vent itself in the special presence of God in duties. See how Paul mourns over it in the text. It is not only a sin, but an affronting of God to his face. This grieving of his spirit is a spoil of your duty. It is, as one amply calls it, an hellish bar, or remorat to all sweet and free intercourse of the soul with God. And thirdly, for consolation, but while I am representing the evil of it to some, and maybe there are others overwhelmed with a sorrowful sense of it, even to discouragement and despondency. Poor Christian, is this your case? Are all the afflictions in the world nothing to you in comparison with this evil which is present with you when you would do good? Well, though you cannot do the good you would, nor free yourself yet from the evil that you would, rather than live, be freed from, there are four things that may give much relief to your pensive soul. Number one, though the presence of evil, even in your best duties, be sad, yet your grief and affliction, for it is sweet. This is a sad sin, but this is a sweet sign. It is not heart evils, heart wanderings, and duties, hardness, and unbelief the hypocrites mourn for, but more gross and external evils. Let this trouble for sin comfort you when the presence of sin grieves you. Number two, God accepts, through Jesus Christ, what you do sincerely, though you can do nothing purely and perfectly. Your sincerity is your evangelical perfection. The evil that is present is not imputed. The good that is present is notwithstanding that co-mixed evil, accepted which is a strong consolation. Number three, you find your case was a case of the blessed Paul. 
a man of imminent sanctity. And if you consult all the saints one by one, you will find them all sick of this disease, so that your case is not singular. Number four, your justification is perfect and without spot, though your sanctification be not so. And the time is coming when your sanctification shall be as your justification is. And after that, there will be no more complaints. John Flavel